organizational cultures are actually a collection of microcultures. And the microcultures are shaped by the leaders themselves. And I think what we see right now is that a lot of our leaders without sort of that, that big infrastructure are struggling to drive the kind of culture that they need because they are underprepared. They haven't been trained and developed in the right way to be able to take on the mantle of managing culture for their team. Welcome to the HR L&D podcast with your host, Nick Day, CEO and founder of JGA Recruitment, specialist HR recruiters. Tuning into the HR L&D podcast will help you to discover strategic growth concepts, leadership development strategies, and the values and behaviors that drive organizational change and success. Together, let's empower our workforces, diversify our thinking, and achieve significant HR success. Hello, and welcome back to the HR L&D podcast. My name is Nick Day, CEO at JJ Recruitment Group, and we are specialist HR recruiters. Now, remember, if you enjoy the show, please do share it with all of your HR colleagues. Please remember to review it, subscribe to it, and together we can raise the profile of HR for everyone Globally. And I mentioned globally because today I'm joined by Patricia Carl, who is the CEO of Highland Performance Solutions, a boutique women-owned organization consulting firm that partners with clients ranging from startups to Fortune 500 firms to design effective workplace and organizational strategies and structures that solve a broad range of long-term strategic workforce challenges across the talent life cycle. We know the talent lifestyle in particular has been very, very challenging in light of the Great Resignation or the Great Awakening and we'll get into that during the course of the show. Now, prior to starting HPS, Patty worked as Chief Human Resources Officer for several public and private firms. She's worked at C-suite level with clients including Microsoft, Target Corporation, Facebook, Deloitte, Accenture, and more, as well as a number of Silicon Valley startups. She also holds a Master's in Social Work from the University of Pennsylvania, somewhere where she also works as a guest lecturer. Uh, she's also a former practicing therapist, and as a thought leader, she's been featured in publications including Forbes, Harvard Business, of you and Entrepreneur Magazine. We are in great company today. She's discussed subjects as a guest lecturer, including conscious capitalism, empathy-driven leadership, leading in the new world of work, high-performing teams, and executive presence. So I can't wait to get involved into this conversation. I should mention as well, Patty is also working on her first leadership book, due for release in 2023. So watch this space. Of course, it's obvious with all of that, to see why I had to invite Patty to the show. I can't wait to discuss all aspects of HR on the call, on the podcast. So uh, without further ado, Patty, Carl, welcome to the show. How are you feeling today? Thank you, Nick. Great. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited about the conversation. Me too. Me too. Well, let's start then. First question I ask all of my guests, which is this, what do the words human resources mean to you? Well, it, it describes my whole career, <laughs> for sure. For sure. Uh, I spent, you know, 20 plus years working in human resources. I think what, what's interesting, though, is the perception that others have of the words human resources. I, I sort of know what it means to me, but I think that to some business leaders, it means the people that you don't say anything in front of if you don't want to, yeah. you know, get called into the principal's office, so to speak, or focused on, you know, compliance. So it has a, I think, a different connotation sometimes with business leaders than it does for the people who sit in the function. And you can see a reflection of that 
in some of the ways that the the titles are changing to chief people officer or people in culture and those kinds of things. So it'll it'll be interesting to see how that evolves. Absolutely. And as a recruiter, I think it's fair to say the talent market has been way hotter than something I've ever seen before. I've been in this industry now for, for 20 years and it's been absolutely crazy. Organizations struggling with talent retention and engagement, the great resignation or the great awakening taught us employers are opting out of situations where ultimately they don't feel valued or, or even invested in. So from your experience at HPS, what are some of the ways companies can build in strategies that keep their people energized, keep their people loyal, and hopefully, you know, reduce that retention problem that we're seeing in the market. Yeah, I think I think there's been some really seismic shifts uh, in the talent market, and as you said, and I, I just actually put these words in my latest newsletter. It is the hottest talent market I've ever seen in my career. It's starting to cool in some areas, especially for, you know, if you look at the statistics, it's starting to cool in terms of people working on site fully. Yeah. But the remote jobs are still, it's they're still getting, you know, many, many applicants per posting. And so you you can see that people are sort of voting with their feet in in terms of what they're asking for from a, a work-life perspective. You know, I think the employer-employee contract, if you will, and I, I know that some countries have actual contracts yeah. uh, in the U.S. We don't so much unless you're an executive. But that that relationship has changed, it, certainly because it's a buyer's market right now in terms of talent being able to have their choice in, in terms of roles in the marketplace. But I also think that some things have shifted indefinitely. Um, And I think that that what people are demanding in terms of their work configuring to their lives and not vice versa, they're going to continue to pursue that. And even if it means that they're going to be unemployed or underemployed or if they have to go out on their own, that 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 sort of that calculus for them doesn't work anymore. The calculus that you, I don't know if you did, I grew up with um, as a Gen Xer. I think that the, what we saw is there are people who in, gen, in our generation and generations before us who worked extremely hard, you know, to the exclusion of other things in their lives, like, you know, family time and hobbies and pursuing other interests and sleep, <laughs> things like that. And that calculus doesn't work for millennials and it doesn't work for Gen Zs. And I have two two adult sons who are who are Gen Z and they watched, you know, myself and my husband work very long, hard hours. And I think, you know, they're saying that that isn't what I want for my life. I want to have more balance. I want to be able to have other interests. I want to, whether that's sort of a side hustle like we have today where people have, you know, they're, they're multi-hyphenates. They, they're, a, you know, you might be one even, right? A <laughs> consultant, a recruiter, uh, a podcaster, right? Yeah. People have sort of these, what a friend of mine calls a portfolio career where you do multiple things that may or may not have a common thread running through them because simply because they interest you and perhaps it's an area of strength. People are really prioritizing those aspects of their lives very differently than than they have in years past. 
Sure. What do you think it is then that, where was the straw that broke the camel's back? We had the pandemic, which we know rapidly advanced things. It forced people to work from home. Funnily enough, you were talking then about how we work growing up and what we saw in our parents and things like that. I actually have a website that's dormant now called allbefore9am.com with that whole premise where we had to get things done before 9am. But we now live in a culture where 9am is almost doesn't exist anymore, right? We've got the flexible working, work from different locations across borders and so on. But it's rapidly advanced. We've seen that in, in, in the world of recruitment. We've seen it in the world of talent retention. I mean, it's very easy for us to say it's, it's a, the pandemic was the thing that caused it. I would argue we were already on this journey before, but perhaps at a much slower pace. But was there something that you've seen in the market where actually there was a, the straw that comes back? So went, actually, this has to change now. And if there was... What do you see as being the biggest driver now for change? It always used to be in the world that I've worked in, higher salary meant you had to move. People move for higher salaries. We're not seeing that now as recruiters. Salary is definitely not the first part of the conversation when they come to me to say, Nick, I need some support looking for a new position. What are you seeing on your side? I agree with you that there were macro trends already in flight pre-pandemic, and that was women starting to opt out of a traditional workforce because of the demands on their time and high levels of burnout. Organizations starting to think about DEI uh, much more seriously and people wanting more flexibility and balance in, in their lives. What happened was the pandemic accelerated it. And I, I think it accelerated it for workers, but it also accelerated it for companies in a lot of ways. So working you know, as I did in human resources for so many years, I was always an advocate for flexible work. I was flexible with my team and allowed them to work from home, even if other parts of the organization didn't really allow that. So I was trying to sort of blaze a trail for thinking about work differently. And from my perspective, treating people like adults, unless they prove sure. themselves otherwise, yeah. right? I sort of starting with, a tr- with trust first until the, you know, I, I see that someone hasn't earned it. The pushback I always got from leadership was, well, you know, the jobs in my area can't be done remotely until they could. Until they could. Yeah. And so now I think it's tough for organizations to backpedal from that because they've been doing the work from home for so long. They've been productive And so they're attempting to, you know, organizations who want people to come back in are are pointing to things like culture because all of the other arguments and objections kind of were disproven. So it's accelerated it for organizations, too. I mean, they're really grappling with how to deal with you know, how what the tra- what the talent market's demanding, sure. how people want to work today. And it certainly accelerated it from a worker perspective. So what we saw during the pandemic, you know, from that micro or that macro trend perspective was one, women had to opt out of the workforce because their children were doing remote learning. And it was often the the women who were doing the were the primary caregivers. And so they had to leave in order to to manage the education of their children or childcare. It was a major, major childcare challenge. And then we had things like the, the George Floyd incident and how people responded to that in the United States and just an outpouring of outrage, really, and, and demanding that organizations 
take a stand, which is something kind of new for organizations. A lot of times they like to kind of play the middle and not get involved. And the way that I saw the, the CEOs struggling with how to, how to support how their, their employee base felt about some of these things. And also, you know, their tendency to want to be, uh, to remain neutral. There was this real, you know, sort of battle within to figure out how to address these things. To be a good corporate citizen, at the same time, they have businesses to run, right? And so trying to balance that, I think, has been inordinately difficult for the CEOs that I've worked with and the other business leaders. And it's very much driven by the demands of the people. Sure, sure. I think you've, you've touched on a couple of things that I've started to, to summarize and to highlight. I think one is yeah, we've definitely gotten from a, a work, you know, we're now in a work to live rather than a live to work mentality for those coming in. I think that's a real positive shift. You, you, you touched on something that I think was really interesting, though, which we haven't really discussed too much on the show. We definitely should, is it's been a rapidly advancing thing for workforces, for companies, but actually for those that have got it right. They've also, for many of them, and I, I'm generalizing slightly because it won't be true for everyone, just like the, the pandemic and the changes aren't, you know, flexibility isn't right for everyone either. But those that have got it right actually have seen huge positive returns, both on their bottom line, diversity of thought, the way that they they operate, saving costs on, you know, warehouse space or or head office space as cost savings we had. So actually those that do embrace it and have embraced it quickest are now finding that they're getting some really phenomenal returns on that. And it's really interesting to see. And actually, we're slowly now seeing those late adopters starting to make some change. I see it in the world of recruitment, clients that categorically said, no, we're sticking to people coming back to the office, that now are saying, actually, Nick, we've added a bit of flexibility. We're now able to do hybrid or or something similar. And they, they, they realize that they don't adopt they get left behind. And you're right, we've talked a lot about in, in, in previous episodes about how it's impacted the employee and getting the employee engagement piece right. But actually, as you very rightly pointed out, there's seen been some phenomenal uh, results for and beneficial results for, for businesses that have actually you know gone wholeheartedly into these changes as well. Yeah, I think you're right. There were many that were leaders. You know, They were out front even pre-pandemic on things like flexible work providing, you know, helping to provide for childcare, all of these things that paternity leave, all of the things that people have been asking for. So there were certainly some that were uh, sort of before their time on some of this and others are running to catch up. And we've heard from a few people recently, uh, whether it's Elon Musk or the head of some major financial institutions who say, we're all coming back full-time. We're all, we're all doing that. It, it sounds to the ears of the talent market as very outmoded, very outdated to have that, to have that perspective. And in some ways, that perspective comes from a a real place of privilege. If you don't have to worry about all the life things because they get handled for you and you have, you know, you have ample resources to take care of those things, then yeah, it seems really easy to come back into the office. But when you when you look at, you know, the average worker, there is a lot for them to juggle and still have some semblance of a life. And so I think you're right. The people who have sort of put a stake in the ground to say you everyone must come back fairly quickly pulled that stake back up yeah. <laughs> because yeah, sure. they were losing they're going to lose. And, and at 
you know, at their core, they're pragmatists. They they definitely don't want to, regardless of how they feel, they don't want to lose key talent and to have a lot of a lot of disengagement. It's an interesting dynamic that people have created, but I also think it's really good for companies in a lot of ways. So you mentioned office space. I when when the pandemic started and it looked like we were all going to be in it for a while. I wondered how long it would be before the CFO started to celebrate because yeah. they could shut down space and save all of that cost. I mean, it's it's incredibly costly. But the thing that I think it does, and this this is a, a real challenge, is if you were an organization that relied on having everybody in the same space, being able to stay close to everyone and be able to to create an environment that people came into that was reflective, hopefully, of the culture that they wanted to drive. If that's missing, then how do you do that? Because there isn't a great roadmap for that for organizations. And I think that's, that's the worry that's reflected when the CEOs say everyone has to come back because they don't know how else to do that. Sure where the the responsibility lies is with leaders. Because when you think about it, two employees who work in the same company under different leaders can have vastly different experiences. Absolutely. One could say, I love my job, super engaged, love the team, love what I'm doing, and you know, have the flexibility that I need. My boss really gets me. And the other one could say, never talk to my boss a lot of backbiting on the team. I don't love the work I'm doing. I never get recognition. So that's the same organization and very vastly different experiences. And those are driven by the leaders, right? Because organizational cultures are actually a collection of microcultures. And the microcultures are shaped by the leaders themselves. And I think what we see right now is that a lot of our leaders without sort of that, that big infrastructure are struggling to drive the kind of culture that they need because they are underprepared. They haven't been trained and developed in the right way to be able to take on the mantle of managing culture for their team. I think um, you made, you raised some really interesting points, some great points. I think you mentioned trust earlier in one of your answers, and Stephen Covey talks all about trust and inspire employees. If you trust them, they'll they'll do great work. Um, but something we've we've noticed, you, you mentioned leaders there being a critical point to consider. And I know, Patty, you're very passionate about um, mental health and wellness as well. But what we do know is since these changes, these new ways of working, it's taken people a lot of time to adjust. There's a fear sometimes that they have to be online all the time because otherwise my boss isn't micromanaging me. And some bosses are, haven't yet got accustomed to out, you know, output-led management. So they are sometimes micromanaging. There's loads of other things as well besides that. Just being connected 24-7 can have a real impact on mental health. What are some of the things that 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 leaders can do to some to support employees' mental health, reduce workplace stress in this new world of work, and really build up that positive work environment. In the case that you just gave with that one leader versus the other, you know, how can we foster that? Yeah, I think a few things, and and they'll they'll sound very simple, but they're not easy. First and foremost, leaders have to make people feel connected and like they belong. Like that is just an innate human need. We all need to feel like we're connected and and that we belong because we are, you know, if you look at evolution, it's our sense of 
connection and community that that yeah. actually made us survive as a species, right? And so when you think about uh, those very, very basic needs, we don't talk a lot about those needs in the workplace. Some of that feels a little soft, but I always say like the soft stuff is the hard stuff. If, if, if it were easy, everyone would do it. And so you have leaders who don't know how to make that connection. They aren't sure even how to ask the questions, right, of, of their employees about what gets them up in the morning, what's exciting to them, where is that, you know, precious intersection of, you know, strength and interest, and how can I put more of that in your job than the stuff that you hate, right? And let's move the stuff that you hate to somebody else on the team who loves it. Like, let's be creative about letting people spend time in their sweet spot, you know, and really playing yeah. to their their own individual superpowers. That's a vi- that's complex, right? It's easier in some ways as a leader to say this is the job description. These are the job descriptions. This is the way it works. Go do your job. You, you know, your recognition is your paycheck. And no news is good news if I reach out to you and and have something to say then it's usually going to be a critique of of you know a course correction that you need to make. Yeah. And sort of having this very, um, I call it the peanut butter spread. (laughs) Like it's a very peanut butter spread leadership. It's like people are more like widgets. And so you treat them all sort of exactly the same, which means that you probably don't treat any of them in the way that they they would like to be. Because the, the alternative is to get really, you know, to do what I call personalized leadership, which is to get really personal with your people. And I don't mean, I don't mean blurring boundaries, right? People, of course we have, we have boundaries and those are important, but we do have to lean in more to what's going on with each one of our people. You could have a team of, you know, three people and they're in, they're all in different seasons of life. Right. You know, you might have someone who's close to retirement. You might have someone who's just early career. And then you might have someone who is a parent of young children. You know, what they need just from a life perspective, forget the job piece for a second, but just from a life perspective, they have very different lives, right? And then you sort of layer on to that, okay, what are their social needs? What are their emotional needs? And I and I know it feels weird to talk about that at work, but we are primarily emotional creatures. And so we've got to be moving into to a, talk about that. We're moving into a coaching culture though, aren't we? That's successful. We're coming away from yeah. that command and control piece. It's almost old hats to even say that now, but I would say personalized leadership probably takes a coaching culture to another level, but you're absolutely right. I mean, I work with leaders, executive leaders all the time and both on the show and in coaching and other things. And we, we forget that everyone goes through trauma in their lives at some point. We don't know, it doesn't matter who you are, there'll be trauma that affect, impacts you that your work might not know. I went to a, a, a thoroughly engaging conversation by someone called Beth Thorogood who's going to come onto the show later in a future episode, which was talking about uh, being perimenopausal. And actually that can that can impact women at different ages. And if, if your boss doesn't know, if I didn't wasn't aware of it, those symptoms could start three, four, five years before you know, actually you go through the menopause itself. So there are loads okay. of things that can be impacting. You could be scared to come to, or to bring these things to work, therefore scared to show your best self. So as you, as you said at the start, there are leaders that say that's your job description. But if we don't ask questions... It's really, really hard to find out how we can really impact or improve mental health. You, you raised uh, something really interesting. It's, um, I think it's a Rich Lipman thing, but it's sort of a hell yes and hell no 
piece, you mentioned earlier that, you know, some people's to-do lists or when people don't like doing something, actually that could be something else in the same team loves doing. For me, I don't like doing Excel spreadsheets and accounts, right? So it's in my job description in inverted commas, but actually there'll be people in my team that love that work. So why why don't I do the bit that they hate if I like it and swap swap over, right? And we're both we're both winning. I think you just raised some really fantastic points. And I think personalized leadership, certainly from my personal view as a podcast host of this show, is absolutely the right route to be taking if we really want to get on top of this, this mental health challenge, which is um, you know, that's a pandemic on its own at the moment. For sure. It's a pandemic. And I and I think that the way that we're talking about things now, and we we put these things on the table much more than we used to, I think is healthy. But I also think it's complicated for for leaders because now they're grappling with a lot more stuff than they ever did before. Sure. If it was just sort of about the work and I didn't have to worry too much about the human, that's e- maybe easier, feels easier to me. And the other thing is that you, you find that leaders, you know, we often uh, rise through organizations because we're really good problem solvers we're able to get stuff done and we can solve problems and we're very we're efficient and effective at doing that. What you find with leadership now is that you have to you have to really lean into curiosity and you have to lean into vulnerability and you have to navigate some really dicey conversations with people and you have to talk about feelings and all of and so that's much that's tougher right for leaders to be able to do, but it's like leaders are the difference makers. They're the difference makers in whether people, especially now, because if you're not coming into, into a site, uh, a work site, then your leader is the difference maker for you. They, they will dictate whether you stay or you go. And the way that they show up will influence it has tremendous influence over your whole life. I mean, if you if you think about, and th- this is really, I think, important in mental health, if you think about this false construct that we have between work and life, as an example, if you have someone who, and I, I've had a, I recently had a coaching client like this who was really struggling with an abusive boss. It, it was beyond being a tough boss. It was it was really denigrating. That was affecting her entire life, her relationships at home, her sleep, her eating, everything was affected. So this idea that there's this separate, the idea that we had ever had a separation, we didn't, right? We like to think we do. It makes it, we like to compartmentalize, but it doesn't work that way. And vice versa, right? If I have a lot of stuff going on at home, I I have a a child who has a, a grave illness that's going to affect what happens at work. And so it's not if those situations happen, it's how the leader navigates them that matters. Have you ever asked yourself, how can any recruiter understand my HR recruitment challenges? Please don't give up on your hiring challenges just yet. Here at JGA HR Recruitment, we appreciate the difficulties associated with attracting, recruiting and retaining top human resources talent. We also understand just how costly a poor hire can be. JGA HR Recruitment would like to partner with you to help you overcome your hiring challenges. Contact us today on 01727 800 377 or visit jgarecruitment.com to find out more. 
I've got, I want to talk about intentional cultures in a moment, but I just want to just hold and land on this point for a moment. Because I think you raised a really interesting point here for leaders. And many people that listen to this show are leaders in their own right. They're HR directors, HR managers, global L&D professionals and so on. From what you've said, if we think about the amount of impact a leader has in a business, those micro cultures you mentioned earlier on in, in the show, and we think about Pareto's law, the 80-20 rule, well, in that case, then we should pretty, probably be spending more time with those leaders than we do. We end up spending 80% of our time with sometimes the, the non-performers almost, and we think the leaders are fine to come with themselves. I'm just listening to what you said. Would you suggest then that at the moment in a lot of company cultures, and businesses, we're not giving our leaders enough support. Do they need more support than what they're currently getting? And is that what you're seeing in the organizations that you're working with? Absolutely, they need more support because the entire sort of leadership agenda has changed on a dime for them. And I, I would proffer that we didn't do as great a job as we could have at developing them even before everything changed. Again, because people get rewarded and ascend through organizations, not necessarily based on leadership skills. It's it's primarily based on how good are you at your job? It's still that way. We know better, but we still do it. How good are you at problem solving? And then when you when you have to sort of crosswalk to becoming this really empathic leader, and leaning into curiosity, that is, it's almost an opposite muscle that you have to build. And we haven't given our leaders that kind of support. We don't tell them how to do it. We don't let them know what our leadership expectations are. We talk about what their job expectations are, but not the leadership piece, Mm -hmm. right? We talk a lot more about here are the results that you have to achieve. And if you're doing a terrible job, you probably won't stay in a leadership position. But if you're just doing a, you know, below average job, you're prop and you're still still getting results, you'll probably stay in that position. We haven't given them the tools. We haven't set the expectation and we haven't given them the tools. And I see it. This is not true just for sort of early career or mid-career leaders. This is true in the executive ranks who have, you know, many, many years, decades of experience, and they are not sure how to navigate the current landscape. Yeah. And as as an assumption, because of those titles, those roles, those companies that they have the answers, right? So we don't ask the right questions. I think something, I don't know if it's the same in the US, but something that resonated with me, you mentioned there, which is talking about the problem solvers often are the ones that get into leadership roles. Well, actually in the UK, that's also true. But I would also say a lot of people get into leadership roles just through duration of, of tenure. They get to the top of their banding. There's nowhere else to go. Oh, we've kind of got to make them a team leader now because they've been here for five years or whatever it is. And they get that promotion, not from any, um, I'm not saying they don't deserve that promotion always, but often it's not because of their competency as leaders. It's because they've hit a threshold in the salary bandings or whatever. And they've gone, we kind of need to do something here because they've been with us for years. But they don't give them the training or the tools to do that. I think you've, you've, you've raised some really fantastic points and hopefully lots of things are, are, are resonating with the listeners we've got here. But I know that we've discussed a lot about the importance of building a strong culture. We know it's really more important now that companies shift and adapt because of the great resignation, because of hybrid work and more. So what can leaders do to create intentional cultures, including what you reference as microcultures, you mentioned that earlier in the show, in this new way of working? And as he has taken the question one further on, what are important aspects to ensure the company is still moving in the right direction? The company does have to set the cultural direction. 
there, there has to be an overarching set of expectations from the organization about how we expect people to show up. We have to talk about the behaviors, the values that we have, because that will be true north for all of the leaders. How that gets enacted at each, you know, sort of within each microculture will look a little bit different. And that's okay. You 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 would expect that. You you see that in global companies all the time, right? You have different sort of geographies and the cultures that uh, that come along with that. So you'll you'll always have microcultures. We always have had them. We always will have them. But it's up to the organization to set the tone, so that those leaders have a framework within which to operate and set up their own culture. The thing that I think leaders at the top of the house um, often neglect to do is to set the tone and continue to talk about it. Um, and I and I, you know, managed uh, internal uh, and CEO communications for you know in many roles throughout my career. Sometimes it was under me, sometimes it wasn't. Mostly it was. And one of the things that that I would reinforce with them is you know, you have to. Tell people what you're going to tell them, tell them, tell them again, tell them again, tell them until you're so tired of telling them. You're so tired of hearing your own voice. And then they may have just gotten it because the CEO, you know, often and, and the other executives in the company, you know, they're they sort of implement something and then they're they're off to to something else. I and mean, they've got very big jobs. The thing with culture is. You have to keep talking about it because people forget and they need to sort of be brought back into the fold. They need to remember what you think about. And also when you think about the nature of turnover in organizations, you have to keep saying it because people are new. Yeah. And you have to keep reminding people and you have to do, you have to sort of from that culture, hinge all the things off of that, like policies, for example. And I, Speaking of things, you know, the hell knows, I don't like writing policy at all. <laughs> but what I know about policy is you can't speak out of both sides of your mouth. You can't say we are a flexible, you yeah. know, family friendly environment and then not have, you know, adequate parental leave or not allow flexibility. Right. So you have you have to have the way then all of the ways that you interact with employees, whether it's via policy or communications, whatever that is, it has to reflect the culture that you've been talking about yeah. so that it all feels aligned to people. It doesn't feel like there are con inherent conflicts. And then that allows the leaders, of course, you have to train the leaders, but it, but that just doing that allows them to create sort of, okay, that's, that's my framework. And now how do I enact that with my team? You said something really interesting, almost like it was a, a comment that came in and went out again, which is, of course, you've got to train your leaders, but actually something that I've seen, and, and of course you do, but there's been a bit of a trend about people bringing in new values and behaviors and mission statements. They come on a big shiny walls, you, you put them up and, hey, these are our new values, right? But actually, a lot of them haven't been trained. They're not embedded in the way that you've mentioned. They're not embedded in policy, not embedded in, in appraisal. So for us, we were in a sales environment. We have sales numbers to hit when it comes in terms of recruitment. But actually, when we appraise people, it's not just about the number. It's about whether or not you've lived the values and behaviors that we believe in. Have you been honest? Have you been, you know, all the different things that we do? But it's so interesting to see, actually, 
I don't know if it's been the same in the US, I'm sure it must have been, where the, there's a huge shift towards our new values and behaviours in this new world of work, but nothing actually changes. And it's not just in the telling everyone this is what it's new. You've got to live them and the do, do, do as well, and the training piece. How, obviously, you're working with some huge clients in what you do. Have you seen that happen, though, where it's been a little bit of a you know an announcement without necessarily the embedding bit underneath it's so important? Yes, and I've seen that throughout my career, um, where it's we have values, we put posters on the wall. Yeah, this is it. And we're we're good. You know, we're good. The the reality is, if you look from company to company, the values aren't all that different. You know, everybody's got sort of some sort of, uh, you know, hustle or speed or something in there. It's something about integrity. It's something about, right, teamwork. They're, They're all generally a similar flavor. So it almost in some ways doesn't matter that you sit and wordsmith your values to death and that you have all these, you know, you have to change all the words. What matters is how you hinge everything off of that and how you talk about it and you keep beating the drum on it and you walk the talk and then you tell people how you're walking the talk and you connect in your communications, you know, whenever you're coming out with something you bring it back to your values. You have the values as the underpinning and the way that you talk about everything. And that lets people know, this is what we expect. This is who we are as an organization. This is our DNA. And just letting people know that over and over again. The posters are fine, but no one's going to the office anymore. So don't bother. Good point. What what matters now is because the, the leader are culture carriers. Those are the culture carriers in your organization. It's the shadow of a leader, right? So goes the leader, so goes the organization. So you have to train them and develop them to have an understanding of how they enact that culture within, you know, their span of control and how, and the, and imbue them with the sense of responsibility that they have, because it's a huge responsibility to be leading other people because you impact every aspect of their lives as a leader. It is no small responsibility. And yet we haven't prepared them. And so they need to have, you know, a very clear directive and they need to have the right development and support to be able to do that. Yeah, absolutely agree. Now, I'm conscious of times. I feel like I could talk to you about the world of HR all day long. You're clearly an absolute expert in this field, which is fantastic, Paddy. But I know that if we talk about your business, HBS, you know, previously a CHRO, now CEO of a, of a women-led business at, at HBS, and your website states you provide fast, bold, and effective results by helping organizations thrive in the rapidly changing world of work. I think, um, you know, we talked about some of the names and the terms we often put in there, speed is in there for, for yourselves. But I also read that your approach follows something called the five-piece framework. So I wonder if you could tell us, the listeners, a little bit more about, about your background, about the high, Highland Performance Solutions, for those that may not be familiar, because you've worked with some fantastic clients and not just big corporates, but startups and Silicon Valley startups as well, which you mentioned in the introduction. Um, but also about the framework that you follow and some perhaps some of the successes that, that you've helped clients with. So if there is an HR leader listening to this that maybe has a, an organizational challenge at the now and isn't quite sure where to go, maybe they can reach out to yourself. Oh, yeah, for sure. The way that I set up the business is, you know, as a as a former practitioner, I hired businesses like mine all the time uh, to come in and help us with 
you know, bring some expertise into the organization and help us solve problems. Because, you know, usually the the internal HR team, we're we're more generalists, right? We're uh, and we have lots of things on our plate. And so to bring in specialized expertise and dedicated teams to help us to take on some of these big initiatives was really, really helpful. What I appreciated about the ones that I hired that I that I hired again and again is that they were fast. They knew how to partner. They were flexible. They were bespoke in their solutions because there are lots of organizations out there who say, here's our template. This is what we do. Yeah. Um, and they try to sort of superimpose that on the organization and maybe it doesn't quite fit because they're really wedded to their thing. Right. And that's just not how organizations are. They're all so unique. They're like thumbprints. And you have to really get in and under the hood to understand what's the DNA of this organization? What do they need? How should this, what, what's the right solution or set of solutions here? And then what's the right way to implement it given where this organization is trying to go strategically and how can we make sure that any of the, the culture and people, workforce, talent, solutions help them accelerate that growth uh, for their organization? It's really, really tight partnership with them and almost acting as an extension of their team. And I think that having been a practitioner, the person who who was on the other side of the table yeah. uh, in my prior lives, I really understand the role that they have to play and how difficult it is and the sort of the mantle of responsibility. And also because I sat in the C-suite chair, I understand how to navigate an organization and uh, and its politics and its nuances and subtleties and stakeholders that can be incredibly helpful to the C-suite leaders that we partner with. Oh, fantastic. I, I love the way you talked about bespoke solutions. I mean, I work in recruitment, right? So I have nothing but admiration for HR professionals because we only you, know, you deal with a plethora of issues within the HR gambit. And when you're dealing with people, it's always going to be bespoke. It's always going to be complex because people are complex, right? And every organization is made up from a different DNA of different individuals that form it. You know, I'm I'm involved in just one small cycle of, of HR, which is talent and retention in the world of recruitment. But there aren't many other products, if we commoditize people in the industry that I work in, that can change their mind last minute. You've sold something and then actually they're changing their mind or something changes or it's 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 complex always. And I think the idea of giving a bespoke solution rather than a one-size-fits-all approach, especially in the new world of work, is absolutely paramount um, to success, really. So um, I have to say, and I will be a link in the show notes to your website, which is highlandperformancesolutions.com. It's a very slick site with takes you exactly where you need to go. Do check it out. Do take a look at the links. You can see more about about uh, Paddy Carl's um, background in there, as well as the other associates in the business. So well worth having a look, and they'll be able to get to that in the uh, in the show notes. Um, I'm going to open the HR and vault in just a moment, uh, Paddy, but I want to have one last question, uh, probably not one you're expecting, but I'm going to throw it in there because I'm excited to hear, even more so now I've spoken to you today. Tell us a little bit more about your first leadership book. I don't even know if it's finished yet, but you must be getting close. It's due for release, hoping in 2023. What's, uh, what, what's, it, what's it all about? Yeah, it's, a, it's about personalized leadership. Uh, which is this idea that, you know, as we've been saying, you know, humans are not cookies. You cannot take a cookie cutter approach. And so what are all of the aspects of 
you know, each of the people who work for us, what are all the aspects of their lives that we need to understand and, you know, attempt to meet uh, the needs in so that they can be most successful and bring their best, their best selves to work. And so really looking at uh, certainly there are financial, everyone has financial needs. You and I know that that's usually not the most important thing as people are considering sure. an opportunity, but it is still, people it have to pay the thing. bills. And so it's, there's table stakes, financial needs, emotional needs, social needs, possibly physical needs, depending on how, how people work at their best. They have life needs that you have to consider. And I would even add people have sort of energy needs, different energy profiles that they have to consider. So to give an example of that, uh, I'm a lark. So I'm I'm an early to bed, early to rise person because if something is important or deep work, it has to be done. For me, it has to be done before 9 a.m. So that's your, there's your, your before 9 a.m. thing. Yeah, maybe I can bring it's just it back. a little twist <laughs> yeah. on 9 a.m. But it has to be done. I can do, you know, lots of things. I can work even into the evening, but it's the the really deep work where I need to be in flow has to be done in the morning for me energetically. And I think people are all different, right? I've, I have people who work for me who really don't get started until 9 p.m. at night and want to work until 1 a.m. And while we all know that business is conducted during certain hours within each country, you know, now that we're more global, it matters less when you work. The more that leaders can sort of shape the work around all of those needs, the more likely the person will be engaged and they will stay with you and and really walk through fire for you because this this idea of quiet quitting that everyone's been talking about yeah. is what i used to call retired while walking around um <laughs> there are people who just checked out they're still there but they're checked out you want people who are sort of actively coming to you to say, like, I think we could do it this way. I'd really love to take this on. That's the kind of person that you want. And those people are doing that because they feel like their needs have been met. And now you have, you know, you have this sense of, of loyalty and engagement that this person wants to, they want to give because they feel like they're being fulfilled and their needs are being met. Book sounds right up my street. I'm not just saying that, right? I don't know what I'd be. I'm probably on part lark. I'm a late, I go to bed late, but I get up super early at the same time. I don't need much sleep. Well, I don't think I need much sleep. Well, the bags might say different. But what I do, I am a big believer. If you get up early, right, you can't change time. Time is is, is a construct, it's there. But we can manage our energies. I'm a big believer in energies myself. And I, I like to get up early, complete whatever the task is that's not work-related, that allows me to go, great, I've completed something in the morning. Now I can get on my day energized. A small example, because it's true for today's today's show. This morning I was up early to finish off writing a pantomime. I've been writing a panto. It's going to be performed in 2024. But I got up early. I've been getting up early every day to write this thing. And every day you get a feeling of completion, which gives you energy before you even start your working day. So I love that. I think everything you've mentioned in that book resonates with how I see the world. I think personal leadership is absolutely the future. I wish you every success with it. Please, please do send us the link when it's ready. I'd be very, very happy to promote it here on the show and in any newsletter we've got as well. It sounds fantastic. So let's open the HR L&D vault. Opening the L&D vault. If you could give one piece of advice to the world, uh, Patty, what would it be? Prepare your leaders 
for the responsibility that they're taking on for people's lives and make sure that they understand how to provide for the people emotionally, socially, et cetera, so that those people can have not only their, do their best work, but that they can have their best lives. Perfect. If you had the opportunity, what advice would you give to a younger you just starting out in this new world of work? <laughs> Lighten up. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I was really, really a, a driver. I'm still a driver, um, but I was also, I took everything very seriously earlier in my career and really focused on, you know, climbing the ladder. And I, I enjoyed a lot of it, but I I also probably took it all too seriously. And, you know, we have very, very long working lives. They're getting longer. Yeah. And I would say to her, there's no rush. <laughs> You've got lots of time. Nice. Nice. I think there'll be other people resonating with that. I like the idea as well of what got you here, Paddy, to this show is not necessarily what's going to get you there. So we can change, which is good. Okay. And last but not least, what is the guiding principle behavior you've seen in every great leader that you've worked with? I would say authenticity because there's no mystery for people. If you're if you're authentic and you're transparent, then you take away the the uncertainty that a lot of a lot of employees feel if they don't know where they stand or they don't know which leader is showing up that day or things are very cloak and dagger, then it's really tough for them to operate and to feel uh, that sense of psychological safety. And so what I've always said, and I, I hope I have lived up to it, is there is nothing nefarious ever underfoot with me. You will get no surprises. If there is something not working, you will know. If there is something that is working, you will know. I think that gives people a sense of, of security and sort of firm ground to stand on as you know as they're doing their work. Yeah, I love that. And I think it's a, little, a good reminder that we need to celebrate our successes, not just always hit the failures, right? And you said, if you're doing something well, you will know. How often do we forget to celebrate the successes we have, but we're so quick to criticize when something goes wrong? I think it's wonderful advice and a great way to, to end the show. Of course, there are a number of links that I would like to direct our traffic to here today because there, you, know, you need to go and see this site. It's highlandperformancesolutions.com. There will be a link in the show notes to take you straight through. There's a link there as well. It's all about leadership development for those that are interested in finding out more and, and what uh, Patty said today really resonates with you, then definitely check that out. I'll put a link into uh, Patty's LinkedIn profile directly as well. It's Patricia Carl, if you're looking out, but there'll be a link there. Um, and there'll also be a link to their LinkedIn page as well. Are there any other links you'd like me to mention uh, while we've got a, a moment here, Patty? No? We, I do have a, a website, patriciacarl.com, which is for speaking engagements on this topic and others that I, I'd be happy to, to chat with someone if they have those opportunities. Super. I'll make sure patriciacarl.com goes into the show notes as well. So do check those out. And of course, if you're an HR LD professional listening to this show and need support with an HR related vacancy, you want to work with a bespoke, as we mentioned earlier, concierge level of uh, search experience providers we are here at JJ Recruitment. And do get in touch. We can help you, whatever that required might be, anywhere in the world. Uh, you can contact myself and Nick at jjrecruitment.com or any of my wonderful team at the same domain, which will also be in the show notes. So just leads me to say once more, Huge thank you. I could definitely speak to you all day about the world of HR, Patricia Carl. So thank you so much for joining me today on the HR LD podcast. Same here. Thank you, Nick. My pleasure. Thank you so much for tuning into the HR LD podcast with your host, Nick Day, CEO of JGA Recruitment Specialist 
HR recruiters. If you need any help with the current HR or L&D vacancy, then please get in touch with Nick and his team. All contact details can be found in the episode notes. In the meantime, to make sure you never miss a future episode, please subscribe to the show through any of your favorite podcast channels. Till next time.